Um, and so then Obama starts talking about who he wants in, in his administration. And so the first thing he says is he chose John Podesta to run his transition team. And uh, John Podesta, people probably don't know who he is, but if they do, it's based on the Podesta emails, if you remember those from 2016. And so John Podesta was running Hillary Clinton's campaign and then clicked on a phishing email and leaked a bunch of emails, which eventually got out uh, to WikiLeaks and weren't great for the DNC because they showed that uh, a bunch of crafty maneuvers were made by the Clinton campaign to manipulate the primary and work with the DNC in a way which is against the rules in order to sabotage the campaign against Bernie Sanders and push a bunch of special interests forward. And so that's why people know John Podesta. But really what he should be known for is just being like uh, connected to everything. I think he ran a think tank. Uh, he's connected to Obama world. He's connected to Clinton world. He's connected to all the power brokers in Washington. And so he's kind of the perfect choice for Obama to stack his cabinet full of the people that Obama's about to put in his cabinet. So it kind of makes sense. And so the first big position that Obama needs to decide is who's going to be his chief of staff. And he's like, I know just who the you know right guy for the job is it's Rahm Emanuel and then he goes on for like a page and a half to try to convince Rahm Emanuel to be his chief of staff he's like come on Rahm I really need you and then Rahm's like eventually like, okay if you really want me to um and uh for people who don't know who Rahm Emanuel is well if you have heard of him of recent like you know 2015-ish version of Rahm Emanuel uh it's probably because he uh after running Obama's uh uh being Obama's chief of staff, he used that as a platform to run for mayor of Chicago. And as mayor of Chicago, he might be most famous for uh, a kind of like squashing all the public sector unions and, and standing up to the teachers. And then also like uh, uh, hiding police video and shielding the police after they shot Laquan McDonald 17 times on a bridge for no reason at all. And then that kind of hurt Rahm Emanuel's career. And once, like, they finally got out because the Black Lives Matter protesters uh, put so much pressure on them that they had to release the tape, then Rahm Emanuel, a year later, after he'd seen the tape a year prior and decided to orchestrate a cover-up, um, then he, like, does, like, some, like, tear-driven waterworks ceremony where he's like, I'm so sorry, and I need to be better, and, like, things like that. But it's, again, this is cynical politician uh, kind of not West Wing, but what's the Netflix one with the, the creepy criminal president, that, uh, that type of house of cards, that type of politics, that's Rahm Emanuel. And Obama actually does a good job of explaining who Rahm Emanuel is in, in the form of a rhetorical question, which he doesn't answer on the top of page two, 210. So he says, like, some people are concerned about choosing Rahm Emanuel. They said, uh, um, but not all my supporters were as, in, were as enthusiastic. Hadn't Rom supported Hillary a few grouse? Didn't he represent the same old triangulating, Davos-attending, Wall Street-coddling, Washington-focused, obsessively centrist version of, Democratic, of the Democratic Party we had been running against? How can you trust him? Obama asked without answering and then choosing to put him in the administration anyways. And the next paragraphs are pretty telling also. So he asks that rhetorical question about Rahm Emanuel, doesn't answer it. And then he says, like, these are all variations um, on the question that would re reoccur in the coming months. What kind of president did I intend to be? What a question. Obama hasn't thought about this yet, apparently. I had pulled off a neat trick during the campaign. I couldn't have put it better. Attracting support from independents and even some moderate Republicans by 
by promising bipartisanship and an end to the slash and bird politics while maintaining the enthusiasm of those on the left. Um, I would uh, I would object to the characterization of his a, a promise for ch uh, change does not is, does not uh, equate like to a promise for bipartisanship. So I'm sure he talked about bipartisanship in some CNN interviews or something like that, just because he'll talk about everything because he wants to appeal to everybody. But his core message of hope and change doesn't mean uh, triangulating between the Democrats and the Republicans to change from what the Democrats and Republicans do to doing an amalgamation of what they're doing. Um, and uh, that's actually what Bill Clinton did. And he was running against the Clintons as the... the Clinton, Clinton was the kind of... Uh, the um the epitome of the establishment and obama was running against that and so the type of triangulation that bill clinton did and that hillary clinton was ad advocating he's trying to represent as the change that he uh he was pushing forward uh, the whole time and I think that's pretty pretty dishonest. Like a little bit later, he says, voters had embraced my message because it sounded different and they were hungry for different. So he's like, now it's like, you didn't run a campaign on, they were hungry for change. They were hungry for different. They were hungry for, uh, you know, bipartisanship. They wanted me to work with Mitch McConnell and they want Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell to try to hammer out a deal. And we want something in the middle of those two. Like they both suck. They like Pelosi's rate, uh, approval rating is in the single digits right now or like a 10% or 15%. McConnell's at the same one. Nobody trusts anybody. And Obama like seems to think that uh, what what he needs to do is, uh, you know, something different, which is triangulate between the two and thereby, uh, you know, attract the, the coalition of some Republicans, some moderates, and then also keep all the people on the left because they want for di they want different. No, they wanted change, and what you decided to do was uh, the same, rebranded as different, um, and uh, then appealed to what your actual constituency was the whole time, which was the Wall Street coddling, Washington, fo Washington focus, obsessively centrist version of t the Democratic Party that we had been running against, as Obama put it. Again, the gaslighting. Over, overwhelming. I don't even know what a gaslight is, I don't think, but I'm like, I'm breathing in the gas and I'm the, I see the light. So, um, he says that I love that, again, this is, the, this is like, he's he, bone to the left. I, he, this is what he does the whole entire book. He's like, I understand the people that say like, maybe we should stop the wars or maybe we should do something about Wall Street or maybe people deserve health care. But I understood that as a realist, like I had to do this and that, um, the whole time he's like, I love the various up-and-comers who advised me throughout the campaign and felt a kinship with left-leaning economists and activists who saw the current crisis as a result of the bloated and out-of-control financial system in dire need of reform. So I felt a kinship with you. Um, that said, here's Larry Summers to run my economic team and freaking Tim Geithner um, and all and and, and uh, you know and uh, Rahm Emanuel. Um, and so I have a kinship with you. I'm gonna give them all the power, but don't worry, the kinship is real. Um, again, overwhelming gas. The amount of gas that Obama's spewing as he's lighting it up. So he says, uh, but with the world economy in freefall, my number one task wasn't remaking the economic order. It was preventing further disaster. Right, we don't need to remake the economic order, which just caused this disaster. Um, we need to make sure that there's not another disaster by remaking the order exactly as it was prior without fundamental changes. Um, and now there, I, there won't be another disaster. I say this in the middle of another economic crisis, this one... Um, catalyzed by COVID, but with a lot of the same underlying things where um, if Obama had taken action prior, uh, we would be in a different situation today. And when the next economic crisis comes, which is, I think, 
right around the corner. Um, it will be because action wasn't taken when there was an opportunity to take it by Obama back in 2008. Uh, he says, um, for this, I need people who can manage the crisis before and who could be calm the markets. Yeah, he needs to calm the markets. I need to talk to what you calm the markets by, you know, telling them nothing fundamentally is going to change. Don't worry. Big daddy government's going to be here to bail out your banks whenever you do things that are too risky. Yeah, we don't have capitalism. Like in, in capitalism, uh, you're supposed to like, if you do a risky investment and you lose, uh, tough for you. You don't get your money back from a government insurance policy. If, if the government insures just the wealthiest banks and the wealthiest institutions in the in the country, there is no market anymore because the incentives for uh, curbing risking behavior are gone for those 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 institutions because they know they're going to be bailed out anyways, and there are no repercussions for that. At the same time, the smaller institutions, the uh, you know uh, the credit unions, the the small businesses, whatever it is, people that don't operate on a massive global scale, which don't pose systemic risk to the system, uh, they're not going to be bailed out, and the regular person is not going to be bailed out and the homeowner is not going to be bailed out and so if you take a loan that's too bad because the predatory practices of a uh, um of people on wall street pushing subprime mortgages to people too bad for you there are no bailouts to come you are not too big to fail you are too small to help so as for treasury secretary it came down to two candidates larry summers who had held <laughs> who had held the job under bill clinton and tim geithner larry's former deputy and then head of the federal reserve bank of new york so here's your choice you got you can either have the Clinton administration, part two, or you can have the Clinton administration's number two, now number one. What's your choice? What do you want to change? Do you want that? Like, we can't go too far. Um, like, maybe if you'd really pushed me, I'd have chosen the third person in the Clinton administration so you could have had some real choices. But fundamentally, I don't want to rock the system too much. So we're only going to put these two people forward for the Clinton administration. And you know what? I'm going to choose Tim Geithner. I'm going to choose the other guy because you guys really want change. I know it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm going to put the, the original Clinton administration guy as the number two within my economic team. So what he did, so this is his change. He's like, uh, okay, so we had the Clinton administration. We had number one and number two. You can choose from these people. Who do you want as number one? Whoa, you want change? Okay, we're going to put number two, who's going to be Tim Geithner, as number one, and then we're going to take number one, Larry Summers, and put him as number two. And so this is your change. Um, and then Obama spends like a page or two pages, uh, you know, uh, pontificating about how great Larry Summers and uh, Tim Geithner are. Here's their their qualities. Here's their little mannerisms. I want to get you to get to know them um, as if this is the most important part of what they who they are, not the things that they did to rip off the American people as they were running Obama's administration. Um, here's a, okay. Here's a, here's a sentence he has about Tim Geithner. He says that Tim worked as an Asian as an Asia specialist for Henry Kissinger's consulting shop and then joined Treasury before becoming a junior trade official in Japan. And so he's just going through all his credentials. He's just gonna you know put that in there with no comment. As a young man, Tim worked for Henry Kissinger on his Asia plan. If, what was it, Henry Kissinger's Asia plan? Henry Kissinger's Asia plan was to destroy Southeast Asia and kill three to five million people in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. For so that would be about a thousand 9/11s were pushed forward by principally Henry, Henry Kissinger as well as people like him. Um, and Obama has no comment about that because we don't talk about the people that U.S militarism kills and and instead what we do is we rehabilitate the legacy of people like Henry Kissinger's and then we talk about the uh, corrupt Wall Street uh, freaking Clintonite 
Treasury Secretary, which we just appointed as uh, part of his credentials, being working for Henry Kissinger. This would be like reading Angela Merkel's biography, and she's talking about how she was choosing the Deutsche Treasury Secretary, and he's like, ah, yeah, as a young man, Fabian uh, Wolfgang uh, worked uh, for, uh, you know, the Joseph Goebbels uh, commercial, you know, spinoff thing. Like, oh yeah, no no problem, just work for Joseph Goebbels commercial spinoff, and now he's at the highest levels of government within. But again, the the comparison, the I don't know exactly how many people Goebbels killed compared to Kissinger, but um, they're extremely comparable, and they're both in the uh, you know six to seven digit range. Um, if you are able to to parse out those type of things, but again, this is this is the liberal change hope president um, that was putting this one forward, and there, there's no comment about it. Obama's pretty honest about who Tim Geithner and uh, Larry Summers are, and he's just like, yeah, you know, these are the. This is why I chose them. Um, so he says, still, Tim and Larry were the dominant voices on our economic team. Both men were rooted in centrist, market-friendly economic philosophy of the Clinton administration, and given the remarkable run of economic prosperity during the 90s, such a pedigree had long been considered a matter of pride. Um, he's like, wow, look how great the economy was in the 90s. Yes, the economy was growing fast in the 90s, principally because the rise of the internet, um, and also because uh, in capitalism you have booms and then you have busts, and sometimes they don't align with administrations in the way that the policies of those administrations um, you know, that directly is proportional to the impact that those policies have. And so things like the Commodities Futures Modernization Act and deregulating derivatives and deregulating the banking markets, the state banking markets, and getting rid of Glass-Steagall, those things would catch up, uh, you know, to the U.S. in 2007, seven years later. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's not that like the, the president is not like it could have been that uh you know the economy crashed three months later and it would have been during the obama administration but it wouldn't have been obama's fault in that instance if the economy had crashed in uh february 2008 instead of you know october 2007 um it's you know it's just that's when the presidential administration takes place most of the impacts has to do with things outside of the um specific people within an administration but insofar as they weren't the reason that many of the reasons that the economy crashed in 2007 was because of things that happened in the 1990s that didn't catch up until later and they were those things in the 90s were pushed forward by tim geithner and larry summers some of these paragraphs you can't believe are written here. Um, it, they're it, they're earnest, um, not for the reason that Obama's actually trying to be earnest, but rather that he's trying to kind of like get attention and like you know get people's wow factor up by writing these things that are that are provocative. You're like, oh wow, what a what a what a bold move by Obama to do this. So this is what he said. He's thinking about choosing Rob uh, uh, Robert Gates as as defense secretary or Bob Gates. Um, he says this is what he says about him. He was a Republican, a Cold War hawk, a card-carrying member of the National Security Establishment, a prior champion of foreign interventions I had likely protested while in college, and now defense secretary to a president whose war policies I had hoard. And here comes the but, or the and, and yet I was in the firehouse that day to ask Bob Gates to stay on as my secretary of defense. I couldn't, you know, you can't write these things. Obama writes them, but you can't write these things. <laughs> He's like, don't worry. Like he, you know, Cold War hawk, body of corpses, everything I ran against, part of the deep establishment, fundamentally the opposite of what I ran against, which is change from the Bush administration and those type of policies. And yet 
here I was using all my political capital to keep the same people in power. Again, my change isn't even going to be just from, you know, thing one from the Bush administration to thing two or from the Clinton administration to the uh, to the Obama administration. Uh, it's going to be from uh, the Clinton administration to the Clinton and the Bush administrations mixed together. And so this is Obama's change. Um, this is one of the top positions. He's just going to give it to the Bush guy who's part of the deep establishment. Um, because, again, Obama doesn't want to challenge these people. If you challenge these people, then uh, there is political prices to pay. If you can rehabilitate them and rebrand it, then uh, you can get books like this reviewed uh, very positively by people across the political spectrum and by most of the big media outlets. Uh, and so then Obama starts to rationalize his, his keeping of Gates. He said, I also had sound political reasons for keeping Gates. I had promised to end the constant partisan rancor and Gates's presence in my cabinet would show that I was serious about delivering on that promise. So here's a promise that he's going to deliver. Again, he said a hundred different things, mostly about ending wars and changing things. Uh, but he said, I'm sure he's going to fill in, you know, the thing that he's going to actually keep is like, I'm going to keep my bar bipartisan promise. So I'm going to give my most important cabinet position to a Republican. Um, and he's... <laughs> And he says that wielding a military budget larger than those of the next 37 countries combined, leaders in the Defense Department, I see, were still with strong opinions, blah, blah, blah. Again, he acknowledges it. Oh, yeah, 37 countries combined. That's what the U.S. is. Uh, you know, that's just how it is. I'm the change candidate. But sorry, Ben from Ben and Jerry's or Jerry from Ben and Jerry's. I know that you want me to just commit to reducing it. Didn't say by how much, but not making it bigger. Uh, and I can't make that, you know, promise because then, you know, what if we were only bigger than the next 32 countries combined? And then, all, you know, 33 countries all attacked us at once. We wouldn't be able to defend ourselves. Um, there is no reason for this other than not wanting to confront any power. Um, and then he says, so he just said prior, like the previous page, that, uh, you know, he was part of the, the, the national security establishment. That was, uh, Gates was a card-carrying member of the national security establishment. Fast forward one page. Still, I understood that moving America's national security apparatus in a new direction wasn't easy for any president. Yeah, it's not easy, especially when you decide to, to choose the guy that is a card-carrying member of the national security establishment as your guy who's supposed to move that forward and then commit to not changing anything in terms of the budget at all and uh, pretty much continuing the Bush administration policies in Afghanistan as well as Iraq because the uh, withdrawal from Iraq was negotiated by Bush as Obama talks about later on here. And so really, Obama changed nothing at all for, uh, other than he elevated the drone programs, continued the war in Afghanistan, um, and rebranded the military in a way that uh, allowed it to continue for years and years to not be confronted by the anti-war movement because that was co-opted um, by the election of Obama. Um, and so it was it was a good move. Um, I'm getting pretty worked up reading this right now. Uh, <laughs> then Obama described... This is... Okay, this is Obama... Well, let me read the paragraph. There was a final reason I wanted Gates on my team, and that was to push against my own biases. The image of me that had emerged from my campaign, the starry-eyed idealist who instinctively opposed military action and believed that every problem on the international stage could be solved by high-minded dialogue, he wants to push against that Obama. You know, the image of him as a you know peace-loving idealist trying to work things out peacefully without um, you know military action all the time. That guy, Obama, recognizes that as a 
of fault, and he needs to push against those biases by putting back in the military establishment which he was um, elected to uh, to oppose. And so, in this way, Obama in, in this paragraph, Obama is simultaneously reinforcing the young, starry-eyed, idealist, uh, you know, different type of politician which he spent the first hundred pages of the book branding himself as, while also justifying the continuance of the military establishment and this uh, national security state um, that uh, he was elected to oppose but then rebranded and he's using it as a way to uh, virtue signal uh, um, about uh, how much you know he just wanted to do what was best for America. He's not going to let the starry-eyed idealist get in the way of continuing these wars if that's what America needs. In the middle of Obama's diatribes here he has kind of a, a telling sentence about his view of, of uh, American foreign policy and he says that he tempered a belief in American exceptionalism with a humility about our ability to remake the world in our image. And so, he so what he's saying is he believes in American exceptionalism. He believes that America is allowed to do things that other countries can't do because we're just special. And so if we want to overthrow the government of Iran or the government of Venez uh, Venezuela, he actually tried to in 2001. Uh, and again, we're trying to right now under the, uh, under the Trump administration, which the Democrats are supporting and don't talk about because there are things that ag they agree upon almost all the time and coups and military action is one of them. Uh, if we want to overthrow Indonesia or any other country, or we want to invade Iraq, or we want to invade Vietnam, or we want to um, we want to do whatever we want to in the world, that's okay, we're allowed to, because we're exceptional, because we're different, because we have high-minded, lofty ideals. And once in a while, we'll far, fall short of them. But in general, um, you know, we just want to export democracy and free speech and liberalism to the rest of the world, and that's why we should be the hegemon. That's kind of what Obama's saying right here. Never mind that, uh, you know, when you look at the specifics on the ground, every single military interaction um, and engagement and intervention uh, comes from a pretty pure Machiavellian power-maximizing rationale economic pressures from d domestic um, corporations um, and the like, which are exactly the same and not exceptional in any way from the other uh, power dynamics in other countries, which would do the same thing but just can't because they don't have as much economic or political or military power. Um, but uh, never mind all that, America is exceptional because Obama says it, no matter how many times uh, the evidence you know, uh, goes against that. It's just by definition true, but he's going to temper that. He wants to remake the world in our image and he thinks that we should, but he's a little different. We probably can. He's kind of a realist. We don't, we're not quite strong enough to remake the entire world exactly how we want it. So he's going to temper that down a little bit. He's not quite like the neocons or the, the Republicans, um, in the previous administration, even though he's putting them in his cabinet to run his foreign policy. So then Obama keeps laying out his cabinet. He talks about how he chooses Leon Panetta, a former California congressman and Clinton chief of staff, uh, as the head of the CIA. I think he was also a big supporter of the Iraq war change in hope. Um, and then he's like, oh yeah, and I needed my uh, Secretary of State, and it had to be Hillary Clinton. Um, and he says, uh, uh, you know, so he went, went around begging for her to help, and she's like, okay, there, there are some things that, that she'd have to consider. Um, and he says, and then there was Bill to consider. His work in global development and public health at the Clinton Foundation had made a real difference around the world. And both Hillary and I knew the need to avoid even an appearance of conflicts, particularly with, with respects to fundraisers, uh, would likely place him and the foundation under new constraints. As in, like, you don't want to appear that there's any type of conflict of interest. If there's one thing that the Clintons hate, it's the appearance of conflict of interest. They would never allow any conflicts of interest to, you know, occur within the Clinton 
Clinton orbit, they are the squeaky clean um, American angels, uh, you know, who, you know, corruption just runs away and, and cowers in fear whenever they think of the Clintons. Um, and so you don't want to, you know, that type of appearance of conflict of interest. Um, actually, a funny thing. So Clinton was appointed as uh, the Secretary of State, and during that time, uh, the Clinton administration got a bunch of donations from the most repressive governments around the world uh, for things, and, and the Clinton administration said that they were used for, uh, um, you know, helping women's rights. And so the Clinton administration is getting, like, gigantic checks from the United Arab Emirates and, I don't know, Qatar and, like, these most repressive regimes around the world um, who want to have connections to the Clinton administration or to the Obama administration and to Secretary of State Clinton, and they just happen to be giving gigantic donations to a foundation that says that it's working explicitly against the policies within those countries. And so the government of Qatar says that they want uh, women to be able to have more economic and educational and, and political and civic freedom as they restrict all those things within their own government. So they decide to give taxpayer money to the Clinton Foundation. Now there's two options. The first is that you know the, these governments are totally irrational and run by idiots and have no idea what's in their immediate self-interest. Or... They're, or the other option is that they're making the calculus that by by doing these donations, they are getting in one way or another, maybe not an explicit prid pro quo, um, but in you know some way or another, or influencing things to a certain degree, that they'll have a greater influence within the Clinton State Department. Um, so there's two th those two options. They're just throwing their money away or their money is being spent on something. Um, I think it's, you know, you, you know where, what my opinion's on this. In terms of corruption, it's almost never a bag of money, you know, for a vote. Instead, what it is, is here's a Wall Street speech, here's a campaign donation, here's this, here's that, and it's implicit that if you vote against, you know, what my immediate interests are as the Qatar government, as the fossil fuel industry, as the healthcare industry, whatever it is, then, you know, I'm obviously not going to be supporting you. And so if they have, um, you know, any gray, gray cell functioning, they'll understand what that is without having to lay out the explicit type of corruption, you know, how of card styles that you might see on television, but it's more nuanced than that. And the Clintons uh, were the king and queen of that type of politics. Um, interesting sentence in page 227. He says that I would soon be vested with the authority to blow up the world. Um, absolutely true, but it's just insane. I'll, there's another quote by like Richard Nixon that said something like, he was kind of like bragging in the way that he said, he's like, I could like go into my office and like, you know, 10 minutes later, a hundred million people could be killed um, or something to the effect of that. I'll put it on the screen. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's the sense that we live in. I th think we have 6,800 nuclear weapons. You only need like 20 nuclear weapons to blow up the world. Probably we have 6,800 in case we want to, you know, take out the whole solar system and the better part of the sun. Um, and, you know, that's just one country. And Obama, one person could blow those up. It was Obama in this case. It was just Trump for the last four years who was tweeting at Little Rocket Man for, um, you know, whenever he, you know, made fun of his hair or something. Like, that That was a guy. He could blow it up the entire world. Um, and that's the system we live in. It's not a stable system in the long term. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting that Obama says that here. Not that I'm criticizing him for it. But he didn't change anything fundamentally about that dynamic, despite saying earlier on in the book that that was his number one issue, was reducing nuclear nonproliferation. 
Again, outside of the Iran deal, he did nothing substantially at all to reduce the risk of that, especially when it came to confronting things like the military-industrial complex and the uh, U.S. national security establishment, um, because instead what he does is put Leon Panetta and uh, you know um, Rob Gates and the people from the Clinton and Bush administrations in there with the hope that that's fundamentally going to change things. Um, no, it's actually changed dynamics like that and uh, you know the risk of the world blowing up, um, you actually need to to confront the current institutions because they're the ones, by definition, which are making, which are shaping the world today. Um, Obama wasn't willing to do that. More, more gold from Obama. So he's talking about his first trip in the, whatever, the limousine in the White House, and it was with George W. Bush. And as they were driving around, they passed a group of protesters chanting into bullhorns and load, uh, holding signs that read, indict Bush for, uh, indict Bush and war criminal. Whether the president saw them, uh, I couldn't say. He was deep into an enthusiastic description of what it was like to brush, uh, to clear brush at his ranch in Crawford, Texas, where he'd been headed directly after the submit ceremony, but I felt quite angry on his behalf. To protest a man in his final hour of the presidency seems graceless and unnecessary. So this was unnecessary. These people trying to like, you know, attack this poor man, the president of the United States, just because he destroyed an entire country and killed hundreds of thousands of people with his decisions and is going to likely face no repercussions at all for those things because my administration is going to choose not to pursue uh, criminal liability for any of the illegal things that he did, not just he did, but the people around him, the, the Cheneys, the Rumsvelds, the, you know, the Gina Haspels, whoever it is within the CIA or within the, the U.S. National Security establishment that decides that we're allowed to just abduct people, um, throw them in planes, th uh, to, uh, fly them halfway around the world, throw them to some despotic government, which we're aligned with, like the Syrian go government under Assad or the Egyptian government or whoever it is, and then have those governments torture them for us. That was called extraordinary rendition, which was just one of the many things the Bush administration did, which there was no repercussions for at all for anybody that was involved, um, not to mention Guantanamo Bay or you know the, the suspension of habeas corpus or the invasion of Iraq, which is, again, the, the, the chief international war crime, according to the Nuremberg Tribunals, um, the, the, the number one war crime is illegally invading a country because all the other war crimes that follow from that um, were the result of that original invasion. That's what George Bush did. Um, and the amount of bodies stacked to the mountains um, would be you know hard to quantify, but it's certainly six or seven digits worth. Um, but that's not what Obama's, you know, Obama, the empathetic unifier is not concerned about that. What he's concerned about is the uh, graceless and unnecessary protest asking protesters asking for accountability. So then Obama starts talking about the uh, stimulus bill, which he had to pass in, in 2008 to stimulate the economy, $800 billion. Um, and uh, he's like, uh, you know, here's where the money's going to go, not just to traditional infrastructure spending like road construction and sewer repairs, but also high-speed rail and solar and wind power installation. Um, the solar and wind power, they, there was some of that, like in Arizona and stuff, but almost all of the, like like Chevron, like was a company that was creating the solar power as well as other, the, the companies that got the money were mostly the well-connected gigantic companies that just branched off in order to suck up from the government teat um, of renewable energy money. And that's, you know, good to a certain extent so far as we get it, but like Chevron got the money and then shut all their, their stuff down like five or six years later 
once the money dried up. Um, and so that really was, that's the way of making change without really changing anything. And it's like, if your change is like, okay, I'll give all the same money to the same power brokers as before, um, without confronting anybody, uh, but it'll just be on slightly different initiatives. Yeah. You can change things a little bit that way, but that's the only type of change he's allowed to bring. And then he's like, Oh, also, uh, you know, not just tr traditional infrastructure, but also high speed rail. So that was that was a great move by Obama. I was really glad he does that. And now, you know, 12 years later, I am so happy that all the high-speed rail that we have here in America, um, there is no high-speed rail at all. That was a total total failure, and Obama didn't fight for it. I, I don't know exactly what happened with it. It was like it was supposed to be in there, and it just never happened at all. So page 245, 246, 247, Obama has, like, mini biographies of all, like, the main people within the House and the Senate of, like, Mitch McConnell and Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi. Um, I'll just read a little bit from Nancy Pelosi's one. This is like a quarter of the book. It's just like, not a quarter of the book, but a ton of the book is just like, he's, he'll talk way more. He'll, 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 he'll go on endlessly about the specifics of like the, you know, somebody's uh, college, you know, education or, or uh, uh, you know, previous life or inner convictions or anything that's really not re relevant at all, but like helps shape a narrative about who people are personally without confronting anything systemically. Um, but uh, in it, it's it kind of gets old. So here's about Pelosi. But politicians, usually men, underestimate Nancy at her, at their own peril. For her ascent to power had been no fluke. She'd grown up in the East, an Italian-American daughter of Baltimore's mayor, tutored from an early age in the ways of ethnic ward bosses and longshoremen, and unafraid, uh, unafraid to play politi hardball politics in the name of getting things done. After moving to the West Coast with her husband Paul and staying home with the five kids she built uh, she, uh, while she built a successful business, Nancy eventually put blah 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 uh, going on, and she kept her caucus in line when it could uh, come combination of attentiveness, fundraising prowess, that's an important one, and willingness to cut off at the knees anyone who failed to live her on commitments they'd made. And so that's Nancy. She's a tough, hardball lady, and, uh, you know, Obama loves her for it. Um, yeah. Right now, like, Nancy Pelosi, like, I'm, it's 20, freaking 20, and Nancy Pelosi's still there, and she's got $120 million somehow from being in public service. You tell me how she made that money. Um, you make 100 k a year, and somehow you've made $100 million in, like, 10 years. Um, I, I can tell you how it is. It's because the, uh, the fundraising prowess also helps fundraise for herself, because those connections, uh, those swampy connections, um, is, uh, what got her to power in the first place, and is what also, uh, you know, gives her additional power financially financially, um, as an individual, um, which is why people hate Washington, which is why, like, you can't really change anything. Again, these, these are, these people are the problem. Mitch McConnell is a problem, but so is Harry Reid, and so is Nancy Pelosi, and so is Barack Obama, but they all love each other. They don't like Mitch McConnell, but they, everybody else, we're all on the same team. Obama's talking about getting the Recovery Act passed, and he's going out of the way to do everything he can to try to get some Republican supports, and even though he eventually gets zero Republican supports, he's still going out of the way to try to work with Republicans, and he's putting in all the provisions that they want in there. He's like, uh, you know, Eric Kantner had an idea for some, this tax thing, and I said, let's do it, and he's like, and he says, and truthfully, truthfully, Obama says, just the act of negotiating with Republicans served as a handy excuse to deflect some of the less orthodox ideas that occasionally surface from our side of the aisle. 
And then he gives a funny example. Funny Obama says, I'm sorry, Congressman, but legalizing marijuana isn't the kind of stimulus we're talking about here. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, obviously you can't pass legalizing marijuana in 2010 on a federal level, but that's not real. Like the, the r- real things that he kicked out of the stimulus and other bills were ideas that had broad support from the American public and most of his party, things like uh, cram down, which would have allowed, again, homeowners to reduce the the amount of money that they owed on their homes when the housing market crashed to a level that they weren't underwater so that the default rates would not go down that far so that the housing crisis wouldn't have been exasperated, continued in the way that it was. Um, exasperated, um, exacerbated. Um, and, uh, you know, other ideas like that. Those ones... I, it's helpful to have Republicans uh, saying that you're negotiating with Republicans as a way to do that. People know what the Overton window is. The Overton window is the um, the the window of acceptable political ideas. Um, and so right now, and so Obama's elected. We think it's over here. We think we're for hope and change. And instead, what Obama constantly does is he slaps the left in the face and he says, "Sorry, we can't do this idea. We can't do that idea." Republicans who are moving over here to the Koch brothers and to Mitch McConnell um, and to the freaking Tea Party crazies, uh, you know, they're the ones that we need to negotiate with. So we're gonna keep moving this way in the hopes of getting some people over here. And eventually, all these ideas, which actually have mass support, things like the public option, not to mention single payer, not to mention the reforms that I mentioned for the the um, stimulus bill uh, or Wall Street regulation, New Glass-Steagall, whatever it is, these ones have massive support. They have support from your own party, and instead you're slapping them in the face to try to get Republican votes, which you don't get any at all. And so he talks about it at the end of here, like eventually um, the stimulus passed with zero Republican votes, and the ACA passed, you'll talk about later on, with zero Republican votes. But they still had a Republican bill that came from the Heritage Foundation, and it copied Mitt Romney's health care plan in Massachusetts. So they uh, essentially uh, adopted a moderate Republican bills, uh, but there were no moderate Republicans left, so they got no moderate Republican votes. And the the Democrats on the left that were actually pushing for ideas that the rest of the world is somehow able to institute um, and that they had the political capital to use, um, they, those aren't possible anymore because Obama would rather negotiate with Republicans um, that have no uh, willingness to give him any support at all. He didn't get any support in the House for the, the Stimulus Act, the Recovery Act, but he did get some support in the Senate. And the way, way he was able to do it was to throw in a bunch of pork barrel spending and specific demands of the moderate Republicans, of Specter, of Olympia Snow, of the couple other people that he got. Um, so whatever they wanted in the bill, they got. Um, and that made some people on the left angry that he's just working like to give Republicans whatever they want, despite having a gigantic majority. Um, and instead, he's like, no, I'm going to constantly kick my base in the face um, uh, and not give them anything they want, and then complain about them asking for more later. So he says that women's groups were unhappy about the contraception provisions that had been removed. Um, transportation groups complained that the increase in mass transit dollars wasn't all they had thought, all they had sought. Like, what a bunch of dummies. These mass transit groups complaining that they don't have enough money um, to actually do the things that they were looking to do. Well, look at them now. Look at America covered in high-speed rail, like I promised. No, there, like I said, no high-speed rail in the U.S. after this recovery bill, so clearly those transportation groups were right. 
Environmentalists seem to be spending more time uh, objecting to the small fraction of the funding that went to clean coal projects than celebrating the Recoveries Act's massive investment in renewable energy. Like I said, it wasn't a massive investment. The U.S. is still way behind most of the other industrialized countries in terms of renewable energy, um, and most of the money that did go out there went to the Chevrons of the world to throw up panels in the middle of Arizona at taxpayer expense, which is okay, but it's like, don't act like it was a massive investment in renewable energy. And it's like, why are these environmental groups complaining about clean Clean coal, like you know, I'm just here working with the Koch brothers or working with Republicans who are run by the Koch brothers um, and negotiating with them, and so we have to give throw some freaking taxpayer money at clean coal, which is actually not a thing at all because coal is the dirtiest of the fossil fuels. And if you're actually serious about addressing climate change, you don't do the triangulation with the Koch brothers uh, and the freaking Republicans who deny it its existence. You don't triangulate between them and the environmental groups and then come up with some solution for clean coal, which is rebranding and propaganda for a technology which is the dirtiest of all, um, what you actually do is look at how much carbon's in the atmosphere, what the life repercussions for a lack of action is, and then act in that way. Or else, if, if you're not doing that, you're just doing political posturing for your memoir um, to say that, look, I was trying to work with everyone. Well, you know what? If the polar, polar ice caps melt, um, it, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, once we hit over one and a half degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius um, and the feedback loops start kicking in, it doesn't really matter uh, how much your triangulation and your bipartisanship um, you know, how much goodwill it, you know, it should have gotten you from the environmental groups. And then Obama, the reflective figure of history, um, you know, poetically kind of sums up his precarious situation. Um, he says, poor Obama. He doesn't say that, but he says, poor Obama. Between Republican attacks and Democratic complaints, I was reminded of the Yeats poem, The Second Coming. My supporters lacked all conviction, while my opponents were full of passionate intensity. Why do my supporters lack conviction? Just because I constantly kick them in the face and tell them to go screw off because I'm going to work with these Koch brother Republicans on environmental legislation. Um, it's, again, it's like poor Obama. I was just doing my best to bring about the change that I promised everybody by working with the Republicans after stuffing them full of my cabinet if they're not Clintonites. Um, and, like, somehow my base is unhappy about this. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's... Hey, do, do you know that Obama... So. When he won election in 2008, there was a group called Obama for America or something like that, and they won it, That which was hundreds of thousands, if not millions of grassroots organizers, uh, people on the ground that were knocking doors and that were pushing for Obama to get elected because they thought it was a movement because it was kind of a movement. It was an re establishment rebrand or co-opting of a movement. Um, and what Obama did is he said, you all should go away because I'm here to negotiate with John Boehner and Mitch McConnell um, and Arlen Specter and Olympia Snow and give them whatever they want in order to try to get a couple of votes. Um, and you all can go away and stop complaining about the you know all these giveaways that I'm putting in for corporate America. Um, that's what he did. What do you actually do to get change? Like you never fundamentally like you, there is nobody that's that savvy that they can just out trick and out fox and out negotiate and out talk the other you know power brokers within Washington in order to get something that's better for everybody. The best you can do is very marginal things here or there, and then you have to give away the house on other things in order to get that because whatever they are, they're not idiots. They're they're power hungry politicians acting for their donors and the, the political entrenched establishment, which 
dictates policy because that is where the power is in the country because that's where the money is in the country. If you don't confront that, there's never really any fundamental change. Obama says, hey, movement that came to confront that, you can all go away so that I can work with Mitch McConnell and John Boehner on these bills um, and get no support at all while kicking my base in the face and then poetically complaining about them not helping me. Um, and so true to form, the chapter is ending. And so, of course, Obama has to end it on a, uh, you know, magnificent overture of self-pity and grandiose um, in order to, uh, you know, cement his status as the historical hero of, you know, the, the early 2000s. And so he says, I now found myself looking out over a series of, of successively more perilous peaks while realizing that I had twisted my ankle, bad weather was coming, and I had used up half of my supplies. I didn't share these feelings with anyone on my team. They were frazzled enough as it was. Suck it up, I told myself. Tighten your laces. Cut your rations. Keep moving. Um, and then and then it doesn't say it here, but I'm sure he puts back in his M&Ms, and he's like, I only have one shot and one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment. Would you capture it? Obama, as he you know, cheers himself on and he goes from fundraiser to fundraiser negotiating with John Boehner, Mitch McConnell punching the left in the face and uh, you know feeling pitiful for himself as the president of the United States with the biggest majority in decades um, an entire movement which he could be utilizing um, he's you know just stuck out there with a hurt ankle in the middle of the snow trying his best to keep moving and be the strong general. So then Obama starts talking about the, the housing market and the housing crash which is Pretty revealing. So he says, uh, he's talking about it, he says, on February 18th, the day after I signed the Recovery Act, I flew to Mesa, Arizona to announce our plan to deal with the collapsing housing market. Other than job loss, no aspect of the economic crisis had a more direct impact on ordinary people. With more than 3 million homes uh, having gone into some stage of foreclosure in 2008, another 8 million were now at risk. Over the final three months of the year, home prices fell almost 20%, meaning that even families who could manage their payments suddenly found themselves underwater. Their houses, their house worth less than they owed, their primary investment in nest egg, now a millstone of debt around their necks. Um, and so then he goes on to give an example of somebody they ran into that like he purchased his house for $400,000 mortgage at the height of the bubble, then the market crashed, and now his house is worth $200,000, and he's hundreds of thousands of dollars um, underwater. And so he's about to default on his loan. And the guy's like, I thought, the, you know, he's, he says, um, you know, how... Uh, how the most important thing was to work hard, buy a house, raise a family, do the right thing. What happened to that? When did that just become a load of crap, he's about to say, um, as he trailed off, looking pained before wiping the sweat from his face and restarting his mower. So this is, again, Obama feels this guy's pain. Um, and so then he lays out what his actual housing plan was. He says that affordable housing advocates and some progressives in Congress were pushing a large-scale government program to not only reduce monthly payments for people at risk of losing their house, their homes, but actually forgive a portion of their outstanding balance. That first blush, the idea had an obvious appeal, a bailout for Main Street, not Wall Street. Like, obvious appeal there. Um, but uh, as proponent as proponents suggested, but the sheer scale of home equity loss across the country made such a principal reduction program cost prohibitive. Our team calculated that even something the size of a second tarp, a, a political impossibility, would have a limited effect when spread out across the $20 trillion real estate market. Because he's like, again, like we had a first tarp where we get, we bought all the crappy assets of all the big banks. That had to happen. That you know, even though 99% of the public, as Obama says, um, or as the you know, as the constituent called during the passage of TARP um, indicated didn't support TARP, didn't support bailing out the, the banks, 
um, you know, that had to happen. Now we have the same type of bailout for Main Street, not Wall Street, and that's just not realistic. That's a political impossibility. He's probably right, it's a political impossibility when you're, the, the political dynamics are, uh, you know, Wall Street makes all the decisions, they run my administration, and, uh, you know, we can tinker around the edges for homeowners, but fundamentally, they're the ones who own the mortgages, so they are not interested in uh, reducing the principal on those those mortgages uh, or a bailout for Main Street. Um, and so instead, they settled on the two more modest programs, which he lays out here. And then he's like, oh, here's HAMP, the Home Affordable Modification Program, and HARP, the Home Affordable Refinance Program. And he's like, we had to make sure that there was lots of things that these didn't cover. They would not help those through subprime loans who had uh, bought way more home than their income could support, which, again, was explicitly what the, the Wall Street was pushing for with the, like, you remember the Countrywide commercials? Every single commercial countrywide is on your side like homeowners want to refinance and get cash countrywide has a great reason to do it now a no-cost refi it has no points no credit reporting fee no processing fee no document fee and no third-party fees no title or escrow fees absolutely no closing costs so you wind up with a lot more cash call now and ask for a no-cost refi we're America's number one home loan lender, and no one can do what Countrywide can. Like you could, like you, you thought you couldn't afford a home, but you really can. Like we're here to help you. Um, every single commercial on every television station for like years up until 2006, 2007. And that was just one company. And that was just one one avenue. They were also doing direct marketing, going door to door. There was some leaks uh, from one of the big banks, I forget what it was, of people talking about the process. And they're like, we, we need to go after mud people. And they called them mud people, meaning uh, like poor, older African-Americans. So they would go to poor black communities and they would knock on doors of like the elderly and they'd be like, hey, like, sir, would you like to, uh, you know, have a little bit more spending money like next month? Like, all you have to do is sign this piece of paper or refinance your home. That way you get a little bit extra money and, and, and your, your rates reduced. Little did they know that in whatever, 18 months, their rates would go from whatever, $900 a month to $5,000 a month, like literally like up like that. And what do you know? Like people can't afford their houses when that happens and they default. Um, and uh, when that happens too much, the entire housing market crumbles down. And so Obama's like, you know, we're not going to help these people. And then he lays out his reason for why doing that. He's like, uh, and just who exactly was deserving of government assistance? So he's like a, he's a fiscal conservative. He doesn't want to give any extra money to people who don't deserve it, like homeowners who are underwater after being scammed. Um, and he's like, was it fair to devote the hard-earned tax dollars of those Americans, like like people who hadn't gone underwater in their mortgages, to reduce the mortgage payments of a neighbor who'd fallen behind? Uh, what if the neighbor had bought a bigger house than they could really afford? Um, so he's like, oh man, these are, you know, these are moral risks out there. Like, I don't want, don't want any of that. So we might have to let the entire housing market, you know, crumble and the middle class to fall further and further behind as wealth inequality spikes, uh, as I'm bailing out Wall Street. Again, he's packed Wall Street with his administration. He just spent $700 billion buying the crappy assets from the banks, but it's an impossibility for homeowners. And uh, now he's gonna, you know, wax poetic about like how, it, you know, it's important it is to act morally um, when 
it, this was not a bottom-up problem. There wasn't a bunch of just out of the blue, a bunch of poor people decided like, like you know, we're going to act especially irresponsibly today. And then the banks were like, okay, if you make us. No, it was like a top-down scheme because they were like, we the more subprime mortgages we get, the more we can repackage them into AAA rated bonds, which are supposed to be as, you know, as, as, uh, as uh, reliable as treasury bonds, meaning they should never refault, default. But really, it was a bunch of crappy loans of the character that I just described put together into a amalgamation of uh, hundreds of those crappy loans and then those were somehow rebranded into a triple a rated bond which you could sell off to um, pension funds and investors as a reliable rate of return and then when the whole entire market crashes because it was built on a house of cards uh, the homeowners are screwed the pension funds are screwed the Wall Street banks get get bailed out um, and then they spend that money giving themselves bonuses and Obama makes sure is not to cro prosecute anybody for it because um, because he says that there was no crimes committed here when in reality fraud was rampant and the whole entire system was criminal um, but he goes out of the way not to do anything because again you don't like the those people are the ones reviewing his books um, and donating to his campaigns and paying for his Wall Street speeches and at the cocktail parties which he associates themselves with. And the same class of people that are going to, that kind of run the institutions in the media that are going to be kind of the, the determiners of, of, of his historical role um, as the first black president. And so he's not going to step on their toes. Um, and uh, instead, he's going to talk endlessly about how these underwater homeowners need to cancel their uh, TV or spend down savings intended for their their retirement or their children's college expenses um, if uh, they're going to be acting in a fair way. And again, cram down was something that his administration explicitly advocated against, which was the which was the uh, like the reduction in principle for those home ownership rates. The house the Affordable Housing Advocates and some progressives in Congress were pushing for. Rahm Emanuel went out of his way to block that, despite the fact that um, that uh, the senator who brought it up, whose name escapes me right now, said that without the administration, the Obama administration, actively lobbying against it, it would have passed. So if they just done nothing, this would have passed. There was enough momentum for it. But uh, Obama went out of the way, and, and his friend Rahm Emanuel, who was... Um, I'll put the quote on the, the screen again, but the type of Davos attending uh, Wall Street, you know, overly centrist um, type of politics that Obama like characterized earlier. That guy went out of his way not to help homeowners and now Obama's justifying it right after they bailed out the banks. Page 276 is kind of interesting because Obama like goes on a long rant about why, uh, like how we got to the current situation that uh, everybody's distrustful of the government and worrying about... Um, uh, you know, too much money going to the poor and to welfare queens and to people who don't deserve it. And that's kind of viewed as where, where government money is wasted and why the middle class has been left behind rather than the corporations which outsourced their jobs and automated them away and busted their unions and so on and so forth. Um, and so he, he characterizes it mostly correct. But what's most interesting to me, especially having just read this book, including eight pages ago, is that Obama totally adopted, adopts this framework and did so even for his housing bailout, which I just talked about. And so just as an example, he says, um, he says like, you know, for why this happened, as the U.S. growth rate started to slow in the 1970s, as incomes then stagnated and good jobs declined for those without a college degree, as parents started worrying about their kids doing at least as well as they had done, the scope of people's concerns narrowed. We became more sensitive to the possibility that someone else was getting something that we weren't and more receptive to the notion that the government couldn't be trusted to be fair. 
then he gives a long example of like you know how the GOP totally adopted this and talk radio and and you know at the federal level and all the way down to the local level of governments for all the candidates that they run. Um, and then he says the government he characterizes it the government was taking money, jobs, college slots, and status away from hardworking, deserving people like us. Says the resentful white working class who's you know having their wages decline and handing it all to people like them disproportionately minorities, but that's kind of a dog whistle. Those who didn't share our values, who didn't work as hard as we did, the kind of people whose problems were of their own making. Um, and so Obama says that this is this is a problem that, that pretty much, um, you know, has hampered his administration. Well, again, like a few pages back, Obama was just talking about the housing bailout and how the reason why he could not help homeowners who had their house underwater that might have, uh, you know, adopted a subprime mortgage, uh, you know, uh, gotten a, a subprime mortgage and taken on a gigantic interest rate because maybe they didn't work hard enough or maybe they weren't vigilant enough and so they weren't deserving of government help. And that's one of the reasons that the housing market was a gigantic drag on the Obama administration all throughout his first term and even through his second term and that the housing recovery was extremely slow and that huge amounts of wealth was lost by the lower and middle classes because that's where most of their equity is because they don't own stocks all they have for real wealth is in their home and when the housing market crashes that that exasperates inequality um that was all caused because obama was unwilling to help those homeowners and went out of the way to block cram down while the democrats had enough uh, votes for it he went out of the way to advocate against it and his rationale like he's like I said, uh, you know, a couple minutes ago in this video, was that uh, you know we don't want to give anything to people that uh, might have been going out to dinner too much or or don't deserve it, and so instead, better to let the housing market crash while we bail out Wall Street and then adopt a framework which I'm going to go on to complain about eight pages later. Page 274 is kind of interesting in that Obama starts talking about the CNBC rant which led to the creation of the Tea Party. And so there's this anchor named Santinelli that goes on this rant which is kind of in a bunch of different directions and a bunch of tangents. And at the end of it, he's like, why don't we start a Tea Party? And then like the Tea Parties are like, yeah, and that's kind of what, what catalyzed the Tea Party movement. And so Obama, and I don't think it's a good rant either. And so Obama, as he's characterizing it here, makes an interesting commentary in my opinion. So he says, this is what Santinelli is saying, according to Obama. Santinelli is saying, the problem isn't sexual harassment in the workplace, it's humorless feminazis beating men over the head with their political correctness. The problem is not bankers using the market as their personal casino or corporations suppressing wages by busting unions and offshoring jobs. It's a lazy and shiftless, along with their liberal Washington allies, intent on mooching off the economy's real makers and doers. And so that's something that we've probably heard a lot from different people from conservative circles. Uh, that are big fans of the Republican Party. That's that's kind of kind of interesting. But what's interesting to me is uh, Obama's characterization of what he thinks the problem is. He's in saying that the these people are saying this isn't the problem. He's implying that he thinks that the real problem is bankers using the market as their personal casino or corporations suppressing wages by busting unions and offshoring jobs. Um, and so I agree with him. That's that's the real problem. The corporations were or the bankers were using the market as their personal casino, and then you put them in your administration, did not do anything to reform the banking system 
at the foundations uh, and then went on to give giant speeches for tens of, or sorry, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to those same people who are now reviewing your book. But again, you throw a bone to the progressive left in, in acknowledging, yeah, it's these fat cat bankers that are the problem and then do nothing substantially to change that. In terms of unions, he said talks about uh, corporations uh, suppressing wages and busting unions and offshoring jobs. Um, there was plenty of union busting going on during the Obama administration, including like as soon as he goes into office, Scott Walker in Wisconsin immediately attacks public sector unions. And Obama, the candidate, had promised that if anybody goes after unions while he's president, it's going to go, uh, you know, put on a soft shoe and join the unions on the picket line in solidarity. Instead, what he did is he zipped his mouth and he continued to negotiate with Mitch McConnell and his lobbyists and did nothing at all while the, in Wisconsin those those unions were, were crushed. Um, and that goes for, there were other examples throughout his administration as well. And in terms of offshoring jobs, um, he was the one pushing for the Trans-Pacific Partnership the entire time, which was negotiated almost entirely in secret and written by corporate lobbyists. I think there was almost, there was maybe like one person from the environmental, like all of the environmental movement that it was allowed at the table and almost no union representation for that trade deal, which is typical for trade deals, um, which is typical for Washington, because in Washington, the power goes to the people with the finances, and increasingly that has been corporations and the ultra-wealthy, and union membership has been declining precipitously for the better part of 40 years. Um, and so Obama acknowledged that in his uh, when he you know pushed the TPP in the same fashion that other ones are are pushed, but at the same time, you still have to throw that little populist bone to your, your uh, disillusioned left-wing constituency, which brought you to power by saying things like uh, corporations are suppressing wages by busting unions and offshoring jobs. Yeah, that's true, but you're the one who accelerated that offshoring, did nothing substantially to challenge anything in terms of the global economic system or the forces of globalization because those forces are just too strong and they're the ones who brought you into office. Um, but you still might write just a couple sentences on page 274 um, about the, you know, vaguely about that, that being a problem without doing anything when you were actually the president. So then Obama starts talking about the uh, financial crisis more and he's like, there are these five big bombs. He says, uh, five massive institutions, quote, five big bombs, Tim called them, his friend Tim Geithner, who runs his recovery program, were in particular peril. The, one that he identifies the ones he identifies here are Franny Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, which are partially government-run, partially um, private issuers of mortgages. Um, AIG, in giant insurer, but they do a ton of other stuff, which I don't even totally understand. Uh, Bank of America and uh, Citigroup were the ones he mentioned here. But then there's also other ones, which, and so, so Obama's saying that we, you know, we have to do, we have to stabilize the system. We have to make sure these institutions, um, uh, you know, don't go down in the same way that Lehman Brothers did, because when they failed, that affected the rest of the economy. So we have to help these institutions. And there are other ones which are of a similar size, Goldman Sachs, uh, Wells, uh, you mentioned that, Wells Fargo, Merrill Lynch, um, and other ones that if they go down, that's going to have gigantic repercussions across the whole economy, which is true. Like you can't, at this point, you can't let them fail. But on the other hand, because they're about to fail, the government would have huge amounts of leverage to institute programs um, and, and push them to do things and institute reforms that at other times they wouldn't, especially considering how gigantic of a mandate Obama had just got elected with and then how much even larger the mandate was bipartisanly to do things uh, against these corporations. And so the next page or a page later, uh, you know, 
he says Obama's talking about one of his plan, like one of his many good ideas, which he just wasn't able to institute about, um, you know, forcing out the boards and uh, ripping the and, and making the bondholders take haircuts, which was like one of the things that he wanted to do. He says that it also had the benefit of satisfying what Tim liked to refer to as Old Testament ju justice, the public's understandable desire to see those who done wrong punished and shamed. And so that's that's true. So the public wants them punished and shamed. They're about to go under. Uh, they're, you know, the Obama just got elected with a giant mandate for change, and so this is as much leverage as you're ever going to have to reform the system. Um, and then Obama goes on to explain why his more radical proposal could not be done. He says, as usual, though, uh, we looked. Uh, what looked like the simple solution wasn't so simple. Wasn't the government nationalized one bank? Stakeholders at every other bank would almost certainly dump their holdings as fast as they could. So he's got to do everything he can to make sure that the stakeholders of the big banks and the shareholders, um, you know, they don't do anything because they run the entire global economy. So Obama seems to think that the dynamic is do everything we can to help Wall Street and the people who just crashed the economy. And we're not going to be looking backwards or trying to prosecute anybody because he inevitably does not cr prosecute a single person that went through that was part of this economic crash which was based on fraud um and then he stuffs the same people into his administration and then goes give speeches to them later um and so but it's true old testament justice was what the public was looking for and the rest of the chapter obama goes on explaining why we couldn't get that done and then ha why he was the one standing between the uh the people with the pitchforks and the wall street bankers they were going with so he viewed his role as a protector of wall street he even says that in here at some point so then the next five or ten five or eight pages obama goes on to explain like all the way like how his, how his plan to bail out the banks was going to work and how they were, they were going to perform a stress test to make sure that all the banks were solvent and that they weren't you know just relying on government assets. And once they showed that, then they could take, get certain amounts of government loans, which they'd have to repay and all this different stuff. And it wouldn't hurt the taxpayers because the taxpayers would be paid back and it wouldn't hurt the banks too much or the overall economy. It was just the perfect plan. And somehow everybody is misunderstanding the plan. When in reality, what he did is he, pro he did moved heaven and earth to prop up the banks um, as much as possible with taxpayer expenses. And then at the same time, when similar things were happening to small businesses and regular people, he did nothing or to homeowners to help them when that actually has posed systemic risk for the economy as well. But a systemic risk down here doesn't really affect the stock market up here if we could protect the stock market up here first. So that was Obama's priority. And then the fact that everybody hates his plan, he goes on to paint himself as a victim for the rest of this time. And one thing that Obama's really really good at is uh, doing extremely conservative mainstream things and then reframing it as him doing extremely progressive things and then him picking out right-wing people who criticize him for stupid things uh, like with the most you know stupid arguments kind of like the CNBC guy with the with the not Occupy Wall Street but the um, the uh, Tea Party rant um, and then saying that that's what he was up against so he was just pushed constantly against from the right when in reality as Obama acknowledged all the push on the ground from people was from the left to get him to take actions against the financial institutions and to help them but but he and when he didn't do that so instead what he's going to frame it as is i was getting all this pressure from all these other people who said i was doing too much and uh you know i just don't think they understand that you know i needed to try to do something um and so that way he's justifying his lack of action while also still rebranding himself as the hope and changey idealist who you know wanted just got into politics to help people and not to 
to pursue power to further his own career. And so second paragraph 245, he says, he's, he's talking about like how he still wants to do all these other things, even though this financial crisis has taken up all his time because he just needs to make sure the global economy doesn't sink, which of course it does for the next you know four years. Um, he says, uh, it was as if nobody had been listening to the campaign promises I'd made, or after he lays out all these these bold ideas, um, or as if they assumed that I hadn't actually meant what I said. The response to my speech had uh, gave me an early preview of what would become a running criticism during my first two years in office, that I was trying to do too much, that to aspire to anything more than a return to the pre-crisis status quo, to treat change as more than a slogan, was naive and irresponsible at best, and at worst, a threat to America. So everybody was criticizing them, him because they said, Obama, you can't change anything. I don't think you should try to change anything. And, and, and they thought he was naive. But he said, no, I should try anyways. And so this is the pity party that Obama is throwing for himself on page 245. Um, I was around in 2009. That's not what I remember people saying is that we need to just go back to how things were running before um, and that we don't want you to change things. I thought you just got elected for the opposite reason. And now you're justifying not changing things by saying, these other these people who are only on CNBC and at your fundraisers and and your donors from Wall Street uh, are saying not to change anything. I don't even think they really existed, but you have to make up some type of boogeyman to justify what you end up doing. So then Obama starts talking about why he was an, unable to prosecute all the banks. And he says that my attorney general, Eric Holder, who right after uh, finishing out of the Obama administration, went back to Sullivan and Cromwell, which is a gigantic corporate uh, law firm. So I think what Eric Holder did is he worked for the Clinton administration and then he went to work for Wall Street and then he went to work for the Obama administration, protected the banks, and then went to work for Wall Street. And what Obama, what Eric Holder did while in the Clinton administration was that he wrote something called the Holder Memorandum when he was like the number two attorney general or, or whatever. Um, and that one, what that said is that it laid out the framework for why it was important for the government to not prosecute executives or banks because there could be further repercussions downstream for the economy and it might scare markets. And so better to see to search settlements so that uh, you know the government can get a few billion dollars um, and nobody from the banks have to go to jail. A few billion dollars is like a fraction of a, one bank's quarterly earnings because of how consolidated they are because of the policies pushed by the Clinton administration and other administrations. And so nobody really loses uh, if you all you if the only threat is that you're going to have to pay a percentage of your earnings if you are caught. Um, and so what happens is uh, th these type of risky things and pushing the limits and taking advantage of people becomes the norm because you know that you're not going to be prosecuted and if you all you know and if your institution goes down um you uh you're going to be bailed out by the government and then and, and uh you know eric holder is the one who pushed that and obama of course puts him back as attorney general um but eric holder would later point out that as egregious as the behavior of the banks that may have been leading up to the crisis there were few indications that their executives had committed prosecutable offenses um under existing statutes and the, and we were not in the business of charging people with crimes just to garner good headlines. So he's like, he wanted to you know, do stuff, but it's just nobody committed any crimes. This was all legal. Um, that's absolutely not true at all. I just read an article about how the um, during the subprime mortgage crisis would you know the mortgages are all owned by banks and pretty much like and they, they, they there was these special courts that were set up to get through them as 
quickly as possible the foreclosures because the banks were trying to foreclose on people as rapidly as possible because the 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 uh, mortgages represented liabilities for them um, and so they uh, were trying to foreclose on people so they got the, the state governments to set up all these crooked banks um, but uh, a lot of the times the the banks didn't even have a record of who owned the mortgages because they were sold so rapidly um, that they would just literally make up make up stuff in, in in retrospect I guess I'll link to that article here um, but that was that was one thing there was a ton there's a ton of criminal stuff Obama talks about like a half page earlier um, how Goldman Sachs, who of course he put a bunch of people in his administration from Goldman Sachs, from Goldman Sachs in his administration, but here he's trying to pretend like he's not one of them. So he says that, so he's complaining about them. He says that, as well as the fact that Goldman in particular had been one of the biggest peddler of subprime based derivatives and had dumped them onto less sophisticated customers right before the bottom fell out. So Obama's literally complaining about this behavior, which is illegal. Um, one of the things, which is true what Goldman Sachs did, they were literally, first of all, pushing the subprime mortgages, taking advantage advantage of people ripping them off get like going into the poor neighborhoods tricking people into signing mortgages that they couldn't afford and then they end up losing their houses uh, and then they would repackage those derivatives into uh, or those mortgages into you know giant freaking financial instruments and derivatives that say oh look these are triple a rated and they'll give you a giant rate of return and then they'll sell those off to whatever you know groups of investors and pension funds um, and knowing that they're total crap but they're making money on every aspect of the deal and they know that they're making money on it. And Obama knows that they're doing it because he put it right here. One of the deals was called the uh, Timberwolf deal. Um, so I'll put that on the screen here. But that was essentially, I don't know, I think it was to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. It was like they knew it was total bullcrap. They sold it to these pensioners and then people end up losing uh, their retirement off of it and Goldman's making money on every set of the way. That is illegal. Like you're not allowed to do that. I don't know all the details of financial laws, but if there was any political will to hold those institutions account accountable it would have been there but like obama says he was the one standing in between the wall street banks and the pitchforks and so he had no um he had no desire to to hold any of them accountable um not to mention that there were extreme examples of the obama administration settling with banks for doing some of the most criminal things that you could possibly imagine during while Eric Holder was Treasury Secretary, where he went out of the way not to prosecute anybody. So this might have not been directly related to the financial crisis, but uh, at one point the Holder administration settled a case with HSBC where all they had to do was, uh, you know, pay um, a few billion dollars uh, to the, you know, to the government in, in fees, um, which is like again a fraction of one quarter's profits. Um, after they got caught laundering $800 million in cartel money for the Sinaloa drug cartel, which is suspected in thousands of murders across South and Central America. So they are literally laundering hundreds of millions of dollars for the most violent drug cartel, which goes around chopping off people's heads and abducting them and doing all the things that you see on Netflix shows uh, to people. Uh, tons and tons of money um, and Obama they caught them doing it they knew that they did it and they went out of the way not to prosecute anybody and I think the only thing that any executives faced was that they had to partially defer some of their bonuses for four years and so that's Old Testament justice that Obama is talking about right there um, but that again that's not how it that this this picture of like you know we can't prosecute the banks that's not how, how he wants to portray it here so he says 
But to a nervous and angry public, such answers, no matter how rational, were, weren't very satisfying. Um, the, 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 the answers that nobody committed any crimes, so we just couldn't do anything. So that wasn't satisfying to the public. Concerned that, that we were losing the political high ground, Axe and Gibbs urged us to sharpen our condemnation of Wall Street. Tim, on the other hand, warned that such populist gestures would be counterproductive, scaring off investors we needed to recapitalize the banks. So again, they're scared, like they're like, oh, maybe we should say, this is Obama's like big argument. Do I say some mean things without doing anything to Wall Street? Or do I not say anything because I don't want to hurt the investors' feelings anymore? It's totally catering to Wall Street on any in any case, and the Overton window of you know, things that you could actually do is so far to the right that it's almost ridiculous. But again, Obama has to paint himself as a victim. He says that trying to straddle the line between the public's desire for Old Testament justice and the financial market's need for reassurance, we ended up satisfying no one. So if, like, I wonder, in, in the Old Testament, it was an eye for an eye. So I wonder what an eye for an eye would look like if they were actually pursuing Old Testament justice for laundering $800 million for the Sinaloa drug cartels like the banks did um, and Obama went out of the way to make sure that nobody did anything except for partially defer some of their bonuses. That's not quite what happened in the Old Testament. I think what would have happened is that uh, many thousands of people would have had their heads and arms chopped off So in order to counteract the other arms and heads that were chopped off by the cartels that they were helping. Then Obama meets with the bankers and they're, uh, you know, they're pretty unhappy with him because he's just been so hard on them. And, uh, but you know, despite Despite all their complaining, Obama doesn't care. He's going to keep on tightening the screws. And so he says, you know, they're complaining to him about uh, why their children were now asking whether they were fat cats. Because in one interview, Obama said that some bakers were fat cats. I did not run for office to be helping out a bunch of, uh, you know, fat cat bankers on Wall Street. And then right after that interview, uh, oh, there was indications that Wall Street might not be donating as much to his re-election campaign. So he went out of the way to protect the, the Wall Street people. I remember that was a 60 Minutes interview. And then a couple of days later, he went out of the way to say, like, you know, no, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, presuming the American dream. And we're not going to, uh, you know, uh, vic you know, blame the wealthy or, or people who've made it for our, our, our problems, even though they just crashed the global economy. Um, so, But he's, he's just going to bring up the former part where he called them fat cats. And that was him being tough on them rather than prosecuting any of them for gigantic crimes. Um, and then uh, they said, he says, I tried to understand their perspective after they do all this complaining, but I couldn't. And then he goes into a long diatribe about his grandmother's like not liking bankers. And then they say something about something. And he says, I finally let out something between a laugh and a snort. He's not going to have any of their crap. He says, let me explain something, gentlemen. I said, careful not to raise my voice. People don't need my uh uh, prompting to be angry. They're saying that he's prompting the public to be angry. They've got that all covered on their own. Absolutely true. The fact is, we're the only ones standing between you and the pitchforks. Yeah, extremely true. Obama was the ones stopping the, the people from getting the reforms that they wanted, not pitchfork reforms, but like actually getting them to meaningfully reform the financial system. Um, and the Obama administration was the one thing that was barricading that because he was viewed as kind of an agent for change that people could trust and put their faith in. And what he ended up doing was uh, betraying that faith, protecting the bankers, and standing between the people and the reforms. Absolutely true. Here's an interesting little tangent. So Hank, he says here that Hank Paulson had used a creative reading of the TARP authorization to provide GM and Chrysler with more than $17 billion in bridge loans. And so what he's saying is that Bush's Treasury Secretary had used the troubled asset relief program money um, in a creative way to help 
the auto industry. Um, so he's starting to talk about the auto bailouts right here. And so the Wall Street bailout, some of the money end up going to the TARP bailouts. Only reason I bring that up is because I just happen to remember that in 2016, Hillary Clinton, during a debate in, uh, I think it was in Flint, Michigan, or in, in Michigan, right before the Michigan primaries, went after Bernie Sanders, attacking him for not supporting the auto bailouts. We just had the best year that the auto industry has had in a long time. I voted to save the auto industry. He voted against the money that ended up saving the auto industry. Oh. I think that is a pretty big difference. Well, I, if you are talking about the Wall Street bailout, where some of your friends destroyed this economy. When in reality, he did support the actual auto bailouts, which came later, uh, but he did not support the TARP bailouts, which was the Wall Street bailouts, which just happened to be used by um, the Goldman Sachs executive running the Bush administration named Hank Paulson to give some money to the auto industry. So Bernie Sanders had voted against the Wall Street bailouts, which again was extremely, extremely popular, but Hillary Clinton was in Michigan knowing that the uh, auto bailouts were extremely popular uh, because they had helped save Detroit, which which Bernie actually voted for um, when they were the actual auto bailouts. Um, but she's going to recharacterize the Wall Street bailouts as the auto bailouts because a little bit of that money had creatively went to the, the auto industry, thereby lying and saying that Bernie had not supported the auto bailouts. Again, this is the type of dirty, ugly political tricks that uh, the Clintons were extremely well known for, as, as politicians in general are, um, which is the regular person isn't going to know. She's going to say, oh, yeah, I, I guess Bernie didn't want to help the auto industry. In reality, Bernie didn't want to give all the taxpayer money to the banks with no strings attached. And then Hillary Clinton is going to slyly lie about it and attack Bernie Sanders um, by saying that he didn't support it. This is why Hillary Clinton lost to a game show host who was the most unpopular person in the world. Because you can do that a hundred times, and each time you might get you know, incremental political gain. But uh, once people realize that you are a slimy, lying war hawk interested in power, um, you know, they don't trust you anymore and uh, you lose to uh, a lunatic. Um, and then Obama acknowledges that maybe some people have criticisms of his plan. He says, for many thoughtful critics, though, the fact that I had engineered a return to the pre-crisis normalcy is precisely the problem, a missed opportunity, if not a flat-out betrayal. According to this view, the financial crisis offered me a once-in-a-generation chance to reset the standards for normalcy, remaking not only the financial system, but the American economy overall. If only I had broken up the big banks and set some white-collar culprits to jail. If only I had put an end to the outside... Uh, uh, pay packages and Wall Street uh, heads I win tell you tells you lose culture. Then maybe today we'd be we'd have a more equitable system that served the interests of working families rather than a handful of billionaires. I understand such fr frustrations. Again, he understands. Like Obama, he understands all of it. He understands that wars aren't good. He understands that Wall Street bailouts aren't good. He understands, and that's what he's going to give to the left, the fig leaf of understanding. While for the right and for the military-industrial compacts in Wall Street, it's going to give them hundreds of billions of dollars and seats within his administration and the power to push legislation while he stands between them and the pitchforks for the people. Um, I wonder whether, sometimes I wonder whether I should have uh, been bolder in those early months, um, willing to exact more economic pain in the short term in pursuit of a uh, permanently altered and more just economic order. The thought nags at me, and yet even if it were possible for me to go back in time and get a do-over, I can't say that I would make different choices. Yeah, that's core Obama. Um, he's going to he's gonna wax poetic and pontificate about 
uh, you know, potentially like there are aspirational ideas to redo the system. And I am sympathetic to those ideas, but I didn't do them and I'm glad I didn't do them and I wouldn't do them again if I had the chance to. Um, and so then Obama starts talking about foreign policy and specifically about uh, protecting the American people from terrorism. And so he says, it's a truism that a president's single most important job is to keep the American people safe. He says, uh, whether Republican or Democrat, the one thing that every president must obsess over is the, so uh, the source of chronic, unrelenting tension that burrows deep inside you from the moment that you're elected is the awareness that everyone is, everybody is depending on you to protect them. Um, and so uh, from terrorism, he's talking about. It's interesting that, you know, they want protection from terrorism, but not protection from the opiate epidemic or not having health care uh, or, you know, high blood pressure or alcoholism or suicide and depression. Like these things all have massively higher levels of fatalities in the US than terrorism does, which I think is on the same order of, you know, people falling in the shower and dying and getting struck by lightning over the last decade in terms of number of people that are killed by terrorism. Even 9-11, like, you know, that was 3,000 people that died in 9-11. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in 2020, I think we're at 315,000 people have died from COVID. And most of the, you know, right wing, uh, you know, we have to blow up the world because of 9-11 um, Republicans uh, are t also saying like, we need to open up the economy. So what if a few hundred thousand people die um like you know that's not that big of a thing and so like terrorism any way that you splice it even if you include the single biggest attack which makes up the vast majority of everybody that's ever been killed by terrorism in the u.s um is still an extremely minor problem if your main priority is protecting the american people you'd think that and including like the the foreign policy responses to terrorism like I think 4,500 or around 5,000 Americans died in Iraq during the Iraq War, so that's almost twice as much as 9-11. Um, not to mention Afghanistan, not to mention the civilians that died uh, uh, in those countries that were not Americans, which were the to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and so terrorism is extremely small. I'd say it, it, it occupies, like, terrorism and shark attacks occupy a much higher priority of fear in most Americans. I'd say that's from Shark Week in the case of sharks, and then maybe Jaws, uh, and then maybe they're just kind of scary looking creatures. And then for in the case of terrorism, it's from the media constantly hyping it up. And I don't think that's an accident because when you constantly hype up terrorism as the number one threat to America, that means that you have to do something about it. And if you listen to the Republicans, um, they will say, and the Democrats as well, they'll say, we have to go bomb these countries. We have to go uh, you know, kick down some doors in Iraq and tell them to suck on this if you're, you're Thomas Friedman at the New York Times and a liberal. Well, suck on this, okay? That, Charlie, was what this war was about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia. It, it was part of that bubble. Could have hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. Um, and, you know, we just have to, you know, show them who's boss as we, uh, you know, demonstrate our higher values to the rest of the world. Um, and so it, it's helpful for terrorism to be a fear you know, you know, kind of a fear-based thing for the foreign policy establishment, just like it's helpful for sharks to be in people's mind for the Discovery Channel. But even if we grant that reducing terrorism is the most important thing to a president or to, to all the presidents, um, the actions that the presidents take explicitly increase the risk of, of terrorism. And the presidents know this. And they've known it for a long time. And so in the 1950s, the Eisenhower administration noticed that, uh, that like the Muslim countries don't seem to like us, especially in the Middle East. 
why is that? And they commissioned a report. I think it was through the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, the report said it, it's because, uh, you know, it, there's a perception there that we just, uh, you know, exploit their resources and prop up dictators in order to keep all the money flowing out of those countries back to Western interests. For, furthermore, that's correct, and we should continue to do it. So that's what they decided in 1954 when he asked that question. It's the same thing in, I think, 2004. Donald Rumsfeld commissioned a report uh, shortly after 9/11. Why do all these Muslim countries hate us? Same answer. We prop up all their, you know, the uh, the um, you know dictators around the world as long as they're aligned with with U.S. interests, as long as we're making money, and it you know subjugates the people within the those countries so that they're not getting the money flowing back to them. That creates some animosity um, in Iran. They say death to America. They don't say that because um, you know any you know there was some pop artist in Iran that just can you know there was a song on the radio that was really catchy and it just took off. They say it because we overthrew their government in 1954 uh, in order to make sure that what became BP, the, the British oil companies, um, had all the money flowing back towards them, which was interconnected with uh, the U.S. Um, economic system as well. And now we put gigantic sanctions on them in order to try to overthrow the regime or even talk about potentially bombing and overthrowing their government in the same way that we did to Iraq. They don't like that very much. Um, and it inflames tension. It also empowers extremists within Iran in the same way that when the U.S. is attacked, it empowers extremists within the U.S. You remember what happened after 9-11? Uh, Bush's approval rating went up to 80%, and they, just, they, they realized, hey, we have enough of a political mandate because Americans are angry enough at these other people for doing harmful things to our country that we can invade Iraq, Iraq now. Same thing happens when we overthrow their governments, except for instead of 3,000 people dying like happened in 9-11, we'll kill you know hundreds or you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people they get pretty angry about it we don't talk about it here because it's inconvenient um and so the things that obama is, is doing which is continuing that same exact policy defending the military never committing to doing any cuts uh you know uh, continuing the war in Afghanistan not challenging any anything in terms of US hegemony continuing to you know kiss the ring of the, of the Saudis or, or, or uh, you know, any country in the Middle East, never confronting any of them and actually working to maintain the dictators, which are aligned with the U.S., which Obama actually talks about later on in the book. Um, that's why they hate America. And so if you your actual main goal was to reduce terrorism, that's what you would you, you would confront that and you'd say, OK, maybe, uh, you know, we should try to ratchet things down here and ex stop exploiting these countries because that leads to blowback. Um, but that's that's not on the record. Also, one of the things that Obama is, uh, is very well known for but does not talk about in this book is that he went around droning people all the time in Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, um, and other countries, uh, Syria, Iraq. Um, and uh, when you drone people, and, and uh, they, they actually don't keep track of, of how many people die in drone attacks, uh, but around 88% of them, in the one leak that we do have for a six-month period, 88% of the people killed in drone strikes were civilians and not the people that were targeted. And so when you kill, you know, nine out of ten or eight out of nine, Eight out of the nine people you kill are not the right people. Uh, that makes the families and the friends and the communities of the people who were just killed by this death missile from the sky without any comment from the U.S. not like the U.S. very much, and that makes them susceptible to, um, you know, terrorist propaganda and uh, becoming extremists. So if you think back to the beginning of the book, uh, I, there was a part where Obama was talking about Indonesia 
Um, and he's like, oh, yeah, I have this great understanding of the world and I'm a worldly person. And I, uh, you know, I, I understand things better than all these Americans that grew up in rich suburbs because I'm a person, you know, I'm a traveler of the world. Uh, I've lived in different cultures. And as an idealist outsider, I'm the perfect person to bring about change. And I said back then, funny how he didn't mention like the gigantic CIA-backed coup in 1967, which killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Indonesia and led to a brutal dictatorship that went on for over three decades, which was the single most important thing that happened in Indonesia, which was brought about by the U.S. You'd think if you were talking about the U.S.'s role in the world and how you understand that better because you were in Indonesia, you might bring that up. And then I said, he actually does bring it up hundreds of pages later um, in the middle of, you know, long paragraphs, just to say that he did bring it up and then goes back to pretty much dismissing them and not really adding them into his actual evaluation of the U.S.'s role in the world in foreign policy because at the end of the day, he's the new face of the American empire. And so you can't really confront these things, but you still put a sentence here or a sentence a couple hundred pages later there in the book to realize that you acknowledge them, but they're just not that important. And so he says, when I heard Indonesians talk about the hundreds of thousands slaughtered in a uh, coup widely believed to have CIA backing that had, that had brought a military dictatorship to power in 1967, or listen to Latin American environmentalists or environmental activists detailing how U.S. companies were befouling their countryside or uh, com commiserated uh, with Indian-American or Pakistani-American friends as they uh, chronicled the countless times that they'd been pulled aside for random searches at airports since 9-11, I felt America's defenses weakening. I saw chinks in the armor that I was sure over time made our country less safe. Um, and so he's kind of acknowledging what I just said a little bit ago, that the, you know, our foreign policy uh, leads to terrorism around the world. But then he goes on over the course of his eight years in office to continue those policies and to expand them in many cases. Um, uh, and, he, and, and again, it's a funny characterization, uh, you know, chink in the U.S. armor, hundreds of thousands of people killed over in just one country. This is just one country that he happened to live in. This happened in many, many countries. Um, so we're, yeah, millions of people killed around the world. It seems to be a pattern. Obama starts talking about his foreign policy team and how it's like a kind of, it's a conglomeration of like these new outsider idealists like him and then some old established foreign policy brass, which he describes as CIA, direct, CIA director Leon Panetta, members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as my national security advisor Jim D Jones, and my director of national intelligence, Denny Blair, had come from the age during the height of the Cold War and had spent decades as part of the Washington's national security establishment, a dense interlocking network of current and former White House policymakers, congressional staffers, academics, heads of think tanks, Pentagon brass, newspaper columnists, military contractors, and lobbyists. So this is half of his foreign policy team and the other half is just filled with idealists. And the idealists want to do things, know things about like the importance of restoring legal guardrails to the fight against terror, which is a little bit true because Obama was not as lawless as the Bush administration was. On the other hand, uh, like the Bush administration would do things like extraordinary rendition where they would abduct people off the streets and then they would put them in planes fly them to dictators around the world that the U.S. is aligned with, aligned with like in Syria or Egypt, um, and then have those dictators torture them for the U.S. Because technically, you're not allowed to torture people in the U.S., but actually, the Bush administration did that also um, when they torture people in Guantanamo Bay, which actually is not part of the U.S. The U.S. just occupies it. Um, they have no legal claim to it at all, but because we're powerful, we can occupy it, and nobody's going to stop us, and we're going to torture people there. And the Obama administration 
didn't do that. But what they did do is they protected all of the um, people who did do that torturing uh, once he got to office and made sure that they were shielded from crimes um, and then put some of them back in his administration. Um, and so, um, yeah, no, that's uh, that's. That's that's that that's that that's the change that Obama's you know talking about. He also went ar around uh, and uh, started droning people without trial that were American citizens. And so imagine if Trump did that. Imagine if Trump started killing people that he decided he wanted to kill at his Terror Tuesday meetings, which is what Obama held, um, that were American citizens. People like Anwar al Awlaki, which Obama does not talk about at all. He never talks about the assassination of Awlaki. Just talks about how Awlaki at one point like inspired some terrorist attacks, which is interesting, but you can't, you're not, don't get in trouble for inspiring a terrorist attack um, in the same way that, like, you know, there are wall, there, there are op-eds in the Wall Street Journal saying that we need to go bomb Iran, which would have much bigger of an impact on people's lives than, um, you know, than anything that Anwar al-Awlaki ever said. But uh, those, you know, you can't prosecute people for inspiring likely violence in the future. Um, and even if you could, you you're, you would have to actually take them to court in order to do so. You're not allowed to just drone people people, um, you know, and kill them without trial just because you don't like them. Um, that's what Obama did. And so the legal guardrails in the fight against terror, I think, is a little bit of a overstatement. There are legal guardrails. There, there's things called international law, um, which is like the Geneva Conventions, the uh, UN Declaration of, of Human Rights. Um, you know, the U.S. signed an anti-torture treaty, although they did put some loopholes in that. Um, but there are things which are supposed to keep the U.S. in check. It's just that the U.S. doesn't listen to these things. It's like it's never been legal to assassinate a U.S. citizen. But who's going to stop Obama from doing it? Nobody's. So, so a power has much more of an impact on how the laws applied than actual, um, you know, letters written down in the Constitution or, or, or things like that. Page three fourteen, Obama starts talking about the withdrawal of troops from Iraq, and he says that thanks to the status of forces agreement that President Bush and Prime Minister Maliki had signed about a month before my inauguration, the uh, broad outlines of a U.S. withdrawal from Iraq had largely been settled. Um, and so here's acknowledging that the Bush administration are the ones that negotiated the withdrawal from Iraq. Um, compare that to Obama all 2011 and 2012 claiming credit for ending the war in Iraq. Um, and then when ISIS came back, he immediately went out of the way to say, uh, I actually didn't negotiate this deal. So he'll take credit for ending the war in Iraq when it was right here, he's acknowledging he didn't. Um, and then when ISIS comes back and it looks bad for pulling out troops that early, he's going to say uh, that was actually Bush's idea. And so uh, heads I win, tails you lose. Um, either way that you interpret it, um, you know, I get credit. Then Obama starts talking about the uh, exit from Afghanistan and the, the strategy in Afghanistan. He says, depending on who you talk to, our mission in Afghanistan was either narrow, wiping out Al-Qaeda, or broad, transforming the country into a modern democratic state that would be aligned with the West. So you'd think that if, so if the goal is to transform a country into a modern democratic state, a democratic state, then you can't have one of the prerequisites for that being aligned with the West. In other words, uh, if the country is democratic, then the will of the people of that country should be able to be followed whichever, regardless of which country they want to align themselves with. So if the people of Iraq want to nationalize their oil, or the people of Guatemala want to nationalize their oil, or the people of Chile want to nationalize their, um, their ore and their aluminum, then they should be allowed to do so. But the U.S. isn't in favor of that type of democracy, and when that happens, that's why they've overthrown all their, those governments. Um, and so, but if they had been democratic like Europe's democratic or like 
Japan is democratic um, and allows U.S. trade to flow and the U.S. to, you know, have military bases there and they play ball and U.S. In, uh, investors and companies are able to build in those countries, then that's fine. Then those countries can be democratic. So we're fine with democratic as long as they're aligned with the West. A lot of countries don't want to uh, just let the U.S., you know, do business all over their country and extract their wealth all the time. So in that in that way, uh, they don't want to align with the West, and that's why the U.S. doesn't allow them to be democratic. And so the democratic, you know, they have no preference for democratic at all. It's just by happenstance that some countries are democratic and do align with the West um, because of the post-war Reconstruction era and the Marshall Plan and a bunch of other things. Um, but uh, you know, that's that's not a priority at all. But he has to put that in there because if he says like, uh, you know. Uh, from wiping out Al-Qaeda to transforming the country into a modern U.S. client state that we don't care about if there's a dictator at the top or if they're democratic, that doesn't read as well for the layman. So he has to say democratic state that is aligned with the West, which is a contradiction. I'm going to start talking about uh, Robert Gates here, who is his head military guy, the head of the Pentagon, head of the Department of Defense, um, and he says that as a CIA deputy director in the 1980s, Gates had helped over, uh, oversee the arming of the Afghan Mujahideen in their fight against the Soviet occupation of their country. The experience of watching that loosely organized insurgency build uh, bleed the mighty Red Army into retreat, only to have elements of that same insurgency later evolve into Al-Qaeda had it made Gates mindful of the unintended consequences that could result from rash actions. And so he's saying here is like, look, this is the guy who helped give weapons to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden uh, before they were Al-Qaeda, and so he helped launch them. And so that was a mistake. And so because he learned so much from that, I think he should run the Pentagon. Um, yeah, that's pretty much Washington 101. You can make the worst decision in the world, but as long as you're an insider and part one of those lobbyists, you'll continue to have jobs, you'll continue to have, um, you know, be able to go on to MSNBC as a consultant if you're, um, uh, you know, Brennan or if you're uh, any of the other Bush administration or Obama administration intelligence officials who've been wrong about everything consistently, but at least they're one of the insiders um, and so they're allowed to continue to be wrong. So Obama's got his whole cabinet together. They're talking about the war in Afghanistan and he's talking about how Hillary and Leon Panetta want to continue the war. And he says, uh, you know, so did Hillary and Panetta, which didn't surprise me. As effective as the two of them would turn out to be in managing their agencies, their hawkish instincts and political backgrounds left them per uh, perpetually wary of opposing any recommendations that came from the Pentagon. Um, and so thank you for putting in the people with hawkish instincts, and of course you have to couch that in a compliment sandwich because you don't want to alienate anybody that uh, you hope says good things about you after you leave office. Um, but yeah, we're, in order to do that we're just going to put in these people with hawkish instincts, which is a nice way of saying people who love starting wars, which is a nice way of saying people who have killed hundreds of thousands of people and have uh, no remorse for it at all and want to continue to do so. And these are the people that Obama has uh, put in, in charge of the most powerful military in the world to continue to push for those wars. So Obama, to his credit, actually talks about how uh, Pakistan was helping uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan despite Pakistan being a U.S. ally. Um, and so he says that uh, there's... Uh, um, the report added emphasis on Pakistan. Added emphasis on Pakistan was key. Not only did the Pakistan military um, tolerate the presence of Taliban headquarters and leadership in Quetta near the uh, Pakistani border, but it also was quietly assisting the Taliban as a means of keeping the Afghanistan government weak and hedging against Kabul's potential alignment with Pakistan's arch rival, India. So here we have Obama acknowledging that one of the U.S. allies is helping the Taliban that the U.S. is fighting. 
a couple pages before, he recognized that the U.S. was helping the Mujahideen who turned into Al-Qaeda in order to fight Russia. Um, at other points, probably not within this book, yeah, he probably doesn't acknowledge it, but the U.S. was also helping uh, prop up Turkey later on in the Obama administration while Turkey was bombing the Kurds in uh, Turkey and Syria who were the principal people that were fighting ISIS. So the U.S. was in essence helping ISIS in that regard. So we've helped, we've helped uh, Al-Qaeda back in the 80s. We helped ISIS in other ways um, by literally helping Turkey bomb the Kurds in those, those countries. Uh, Hezbollah is on the, is on like the top of the, the terrorist list. People would probably associate them uh, with Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Well, they were actually fighting ISIS. They were one of the main groups fighting ISIS in Lebanon. Um, uh, the U.S. was not doing that. At one point, I think Al-Qaeda actually, let me make sure of this. Uh, yeah, uh, Al-Qaeda was actually fighting ISIS in parts of Yemen and Syria. So there was, there's a gigantic mesh of different alignments and things. And the U.S. has been on the side of helping some terrorists to the, uh, you know, uh, fight other terrorists, um, as well as fight, helping some U.S. allies fight or support the terrorists that we're supposed to be fighting. Um, this is what happens when your main priority isn't stopping terrorism, as Obama said a few pages ago, um, and is actually uh, maintaining the global economic order, is that you have a hundred things like this. Um, and there are things called blowback, which are when you, well, first of all, when you kill civilians, which happens when you're occupying um, and invading their countries and bombing them all the time, but also when you uh, support groups that are the enemy of my enemy and think that they're your friend, but actually they're some of the most extremist groups, uh, you know, within the Middle East. Um, and so for a long time, the main threat to uh, U.S. interest is kind of democratic nationalism, like real nationalism, where they're like trying to nationalize the resources of a country in order to help better the people and reduce U.S. and outside influence. That's a real threat. And so in order to subvert that, we need to support whoever it is, whether it's a, you know, Saudi monarchy or it's, uh, you know, the Turkish government as they bomb the Kurds, um, or it's this group or that group. Um, uh, that's the main priority. And then we'll kind of like cop, you know, uh, you know, glue in other priorities like uh, stopping ISIS or, you know, fighting the Taliban here and there as well. But the main thing is continuing the, the main economic order. Obama's about to expand the war in Afghanistan. And he says, uh, you know, I didn't like the deal, but it was uh, becoming a pattern. The alternati alternatives were worse. The stakes involved, the risks of a possible collapse of the Afghan government or the Taliban gaining footholds in major cities were simply too high for us not to act. So he had to act. Um, and then I'm reading this like 11 years later. And the, the thing that sticks out to me is we're in the exact same situation 11 years later and we've spent hundreds of billions of dollars uh, which might make one and, and, and people are saying we can't withdraw from Afghanistan the government's not strong enough the Taliban is still too strong um, it's almost enough to make you think that maybe this was just a giant waste of time meant to grease the the kind of levers of power and make sure the money keeps flowing and there's no you know the people in his administration uh, which he characterized as from like the, the military industrial complex and the um, Pentagon and the defense contractors and, and all those people maybe they don't really care about uh, how much money is spent or how many lives are lost. Maybe what they care about is continuing the system as it is, and if the war goes on forever, that's just fine with them. Then Obama starts talking about Stanley McChrystal, who he's like talking about as some like Rambo-like figure. He was the head of the JSOC, which was the Joint Special Operations Command, um, and he says that uh, within the U.S. military, members of the special ops were considered a breed apart, an elite warrior class that carried out the most difficult missions under the most dangerous circumstances. The guy in the movie 
uh, the guys in the movies repelling from helicopters into enemy territory or making ambitious landings under cover of darkness. Um, so Obama's like, you know, hyping this up like it's some type of, uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone movie. Um, it's I kind I just watched like a kind of a special on China, the rise of China. There was a big long PBS special which is actually pretty good about it. And one of the parts they like they were talking about how like uh, China nationalism, like the the movie industry in China, is like propping up movies like Rambo style movies in China. And they show some clips of it. And I'm pretty, I'm as indoctrinated in terms of this, you know, this rah rah mentality as most as almost anybody I think. Um, but I'm like watching it, and there's like a Chinese Rambo just shooting Americans that are like invading China in the same way that Rambo would do for a bunch of different people, you know, Russians or Chinese or, or whoever it was in all these different movies. Me the flag. It's more than dedication to China. The good guys are the Chinese military. The bad guy... Welcome to Africa, son. ...is a violence-loving, colonialist American. People like you will always be inferior to people like me. That's history. And it was like kind of like disturbing. I'm like, this is... But it's like exactly what the U.S. is doing all the time uh, in their movies. And not just in movies. This is what we do in the real world. And our liberal Nobel Peace Prize winning presidents will, um, you know, talk about it in the same type of rah-rah mentality that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the most hardcore right-wingers will. Um, and so I think that's, that, that's telling about the U.S. political culture and how deep that seeped in to the mindset of people. When you see other countries do it, everybody would be like, oh my gosh, that's disturbing. Why are they doing that in Pakistan? Why are they doing that in China? Why are they doing that in Russia? That is like, we have to stop that. They're doing exactly what we're doing. Well, they, first of all, they're not even doing it, but if they were doing it or to the extent that they are, everybody's like, we have to stop doing that. But the only thing that's different is the geography of the people uh, that, uh, or where the people were born and which team you're rooting for. Um, so Obama's about to talk about how the global, you know, the new world order, how the global economic military order got established. But first he, like in order to lead into that, he talks about what it's like when he landed in different countries. And he's like, people would gather at the airport to look out the windows and there would be a bunch of, you know, press that were taking pictures as soon as I got off the plane. And sometimes people would give me a bouquet of flowers. And he says, in all of this, one sense the faint but indelible residue of ancient rituals, rituals of diplomacy, but also rituals of tribute to an empire. So that's going to be his, his springboard, which he's going to jump off into talking about how it got became that way. Um, and spoiler alert, as he talks about it, he will insert a caveat here, he'll insert a caveat there, he'll qualify this, he'll qualify that. Um, he'll actually give a relatively good account of how it kind of got like this. But fundamentally, he's not going to challenge any of it because that would be subversive. That would be that would challenge his power as well. And he knew, knows who butters his bread. And so, uh, if he's he can rebrand himself a little bit, so he can do things like win the Nobel Peace Prize and get elected president with support from the anti-war movement. But he's not going to challenge it too much as he talks about this. And so the rituals of tribute to an empire, that empire, he's happy to be the head of. But then Obama starts talking about how did this world order get established, and he starts talking about 
after World War II, how there were a bunch of institutions that were created, uh, like the IMF and the World Bank um, and the Bretton Woods system for the economic institutions and the Marshall Plan in order to rebuild Europe um, and uh, kind of align it with the U.S. as well as the same thing that we did in, in Japan. Um, and, and then NATO. So he talks about the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, uh, and the Pacific Alliances to serve as a bulwark against the Soviet Union and bind former enemies into an alignment with the West, um, which is correct. So the, all, all these things happen, he, he lays it out correctly, and that is what NATO was uh, said to be there for, was to stop the Soviet hordes from attacking Western Europe. We have to keep the you know East Europeans and the Soviets out as they try to export communism and destroy freedom around the world. That's what NATO is for. Um, what's inter interesting is that uh, in 1989, the Soviet Union fell, um, or the Berlin fall, Wall fell, and then 1990, 1991, the Soviet Union fell, and they became aligned with the U.S. Um, and you know what NATO did then? What NATO did is first we promised Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one inch to the east, meaning that uh, NATO would not incur into former Soviet territory and Soviet influence. Um, and instead, uh, uh, you know, it will stay where it is. What actually happened is that NATO immediately expanded eastward all the way up to the doors of Russia. And so by the, you know, like 2010 or so, um, or, or maybe 2012-ish, um, pretty much every country all the way up to Russia had been incorporated into NATO. Not every country, but um, a lot of countries, I think around a dozen or so. Poland, I can't name all, all of them off the top of my head, but even Ukraine was about to or enter into NATO. And Ukraine was right next to Russia. And so this would be the equivalent of the Warsaw Pact, which was essentially the Soviet equivalent of NATO, which was like a military alliance in order to expand Russian in interests, if they expanded after, uh, you know, the U.S. and Russia were supposed to be allies, all the way up to Mexico, like the borders of Mexico, or up to Canada, um, the U.S. would never allow that. And so notice where, like, these foreign policy fights are happening. They happen on the borders of Russia in the case of the Ukraine, or in China, like the, the tensions in the South China Sea, which is right next to China. Tension isn't in, you know, Ecuador for China's influence. And so the reason that is, is because the U.S. assumes that its influence is global. Um, and so as soon as any regional power tries to slightly expand or do the same thing that the U.S. does, the U.S. immediately has to subvert it. Now, I'm not supportive of any powers doing the things that the U.S. does, but just be aware that the reason that the U.S. is doing that is not because they're interested in human rights, it's because uh, that's a threat to U.S. hegemony, and they want hegemony, but just for the U.S. to, to, to control what happens to other countries, not for Russia or China to do it. Um, and so that's interesting. But what's interesting about NATO is, yeah, NATO was there to, to be a bulwark against the Soviets. The Soviet Union is no longer there, but NATO continues to expand for 20 years afterwards, even during the time, you know, from, you know, the 1990s till the mid-2000s, or, or even up until Trump was elected, that uh, uh, Russia was supposedly an ally. And so why are we have this host why do we have this military alliance continually expanding uh, if the reason for it is no longer there? The reason I think is clear. It's because the reason for NATO was never to stop, uh, you know, it was to protect the people of Europe. It was to expand U.S. and and European and Western interests around the world. And that's why it continues today. And Obama understands all that. Um, and he, he, he says he understands it right before dismissing that understanding. So he says, 
to his credit, our motivations for uh, erecting the architecture had hardly been selfless. He's talking about like all these the global economic systems and uh, expanding Western influence everywhere. Beyond helping to uh, assure our security, it pried open markets, which is totally untrue. Like the Cold War was maybe the most dangerous point in U.S. history, and a lot of times America thought it was about to be blown up by the Soviet Union's because they kept expanding tensions. So this was not helping the U.S. become more secure. Now the Cold War never turned to a hot war, but that was just a lucky coincidence, not something that the U.S. was doing. They were constantly inflaming tensions for the betterment of, you know, U.S. business interests and, um, you know, playing chicken with with the Russians. Um, but it wasn't enhancing security. But it, he says it pried open markets to sell our goods, kept sea lanes available for our ships, and maintained the steady flow of oil for our factories and cars. It ensured that our banks got repaid in dollars, our multi multinational factories weren't seized, our tourists uh, could cash their traveler's checks, and our international Carls would go through. At times, we bent global institutions to serve Cold War imperatives or ignored them altogether. We meddled in the affairs of other countries, sometimes with disastrous results or actions often uh, contradicted the ideas of the ideals of democracy, self-determination, and human rights we professed uh, to embody. So he's acknowledging all of that. And I, we could go through a long, long list. And if you go through the list, it's like you, you could not... Everything he's saying is true to a scale that you could hardly imagine. But then he says... Still, to a degree unmatched by any superpower in history, America chose to bind itself to a set of international laws, rules, and norms. Which is ironic because we just talked about how Obama went out of his way not to enforce international law, rules, or norms. Uh, more often than not, we exercised a degree of restraint in our dealings with smaller, weaker nations, relying less on threats and coercion to maintain a global pact. Over time, that willingness to act on behalf of a common good, even if imperfectly, strengthened rather than diminished our influence contributing to the system's overall durability, and if America was not already universally loved, we are at least respected and not merely feared. Um, I, I mean, that's true to an extent in, in certain countries, principally in U.S. ally countries, um, but uh, yeah, the U.S. has invaded more countries than any other country in the world, maybe as much as every other country combined. That's probably not quite true, but uh, um, in terms of, like, I, I don't know how you can make that statement if you actually look at the data for the number of countries that the U.S. has invaded. I think we've been at war pretty much every single year for like the past 150 years not every year but there's only been like a few years where we're not at war um that's not how it is for other countries like iran hasn't invaded another country in i think like 200 years or something like that um and iran is you know supposed to be the boogeyman for the u.s one of like the 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 lunatic um you know the lunatic country that's off the rails about to destroy the world when in reality the u.s has been doing this the longest time and is still somehow able to get its you know nobel peace prize winning president to rebrand it as an unmatched superpower in history choosing to you know tie itself to an international law more than any other country totally untrue but it's a myth that you have to believe if you're going to be the head of that superpower um, and continue to con uh, you know expand that system and again Obama knows where all the bodies are buried he's just not interesting in, in talking about them and so he'll again, he'll mention that like he knows all the like the things I'm saying he knows them and so he's like, he's talking about the, the fall of the Soviet Union um, and how uh, he says in nearly every instance, the United States had stepped, stepped in to save the day, but which is totally not true. But in exchange for emergency financing and continued access to the global economic markets, folks like Bob Rubin and Alan Greenspan, 
parentheses, not to mention Ruben's aides at the time, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, i.e. the people who I put at the head of my economic system, so I know what they did, um, had pushed uh, ailing countries to accept tough medicine, including currency devaluations, deep cuts in spending, and a number of other austerity measures that shored up their international credit ratings but visited enormous hardship on their people. So what he's saying is that the U.S., through the international institutions which they dominate, um, and through people like the people that are top of my administration, caused uh, enormous hardship on people um, by devaluing their currencies and doing everything that you could to make sure that international investors were paid back first and that there was no investment, you know, to the people and that markets were always open and everything that uh, you know the you know people complain about the global capitalist economic order, um, including like. Trump Republicans, as well as Bernie Sanders Democrats, as well as Obama supporters in 2008. He knows about all of it. He knew the people that were doing it, and uh, he acknowledges it in one half a sentence in a parenthesis, and you know, in page 330. Um, but uh, you know, at page 120, he was giving three pages. Uh, about you know the the families and about the values of these people um, as he justified putting them in his cabinet. Again, it doesn't matter how much they love their kids. Uh, what matters is what uh, they were actually doing with their power. And Obama knows what they were doing, and he knows what they were likely to continue to do because these are the people. Um, these, these are the same people, but he has no problem with that.